Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. I'm Leah, and today Jeff and I are going to talk about how bike stuff is made. Now, trying to find a mountain bike made in the USA is difficult, though it's not impossible these days. The biggest brands manufacture high-quality bikes overseas, but it turns out a lot of work is still being done right here in the good old U.S. of A. It's not as if designers can just email a file to a factory and it spits out bikes. We're going to talk about the ways companies like Specialized, Light in Motion, Envy, and Pivot are prototyping and even building these products right here in their own facilities. All right, so let's start with Specialized Bikes. So Specialized is headquartered right in Morgan Hill, California, and that's really close to Silicon Valley. So I used to work in semiconductor manufacturing right in the heart of Silicon Valley, so I know there are a lot really smart folks, smart engineers out there, a lot of innovation constantly being produced out of this area of the country. So I was a little surprised to hear that when Jeff came back from his trip from California, he actually visited the factory where they do manufacturing and research. So tell us some more about that, Jeff. Yeah, so one of the big stories from our visit was that Specialized just opened this really big testing and prototyping facility right there at their headquarters. Uh, It's a big, you know, industrial-sized building where they have all kinds of rooms dedicated to, you know, different testing equipment. They have, like, a CT scanner there where, like, they, they were saying that, I mean, I guess it's the same sort of like the medical device, but you can use it to, like, look at carbon fiber and scan it. And anyway, they have all this this crazy equipment there that you wouldn't expect to find here in the U.S., especially if you assume that everything is being built overseas. So it turns out that a lot of bike design is done using software. You know, that's where it all gets started on a computer screen somewhere. But like Leah said in the intro, it's not like you can just hit print and, you know, the bike pops out of a factory like on the other side of the world. There's still a ton of work that goes into actually figuring out how to manufacture something. But getting even before that step, you know, there's a lot of prototyping that is involved with bike design. So engineer will come up with a design, you know, on the computer and they'll run a number of simulations that can, you know, look at the forces and how they're going to interact. And, you know, they make sure everything is in theory is strong enough and is going to work. And once they get to that point, they create a 3D prototype. And Oh, so you can actually hit print. And the bike shoots out. Well, sort of. So there are these like large scale 3D printers that are available and there aren't a whole lot of them. I actually asked that same question, you know, could you just print like an entire frame out? And uh, the designers and engineers said that, you know, generally, no, there are a few companies. They mentioned there is a company in Silicon Valley that has one of these large format 3D printers and that they have actually done that where they print like an entire front triangle or a rear triangle, but they don't usually have to do that. 
at least at the really early stages. So what they'll actually do is print just like a small piece, like say, you know, just a part of the linkage and they'll print it out and couple it together and see how it works, you know, make sure none of the parts are rubbing and that, you know, that everything comes out the way that they wanted it to. Another thing with this particular design with the new stump jumper, they really worked a lot on the internal cable routing. And so that's the kind of thing that, I mean, I think you could see it on the computer, but you really want to be able to feel it and touch it and figure out like where are things binding up and, you know, what can you do to improve the design? So prototyping is, is really important. And they, like I said, this process too, it identifies problems that you wouldn't identify on the computer. You know, you'd see the computer tells you like, yep, in theory, all this works, but then you, you put it together and you're like, Hey, this, you know, doesn't, doesn't fit a water bottle the way that I thought it would, or like, you know, this is going to be hard to assemble. So they make some changes based on that stuff. And just the ability to like rapidly cycle through this, these prototypes is really important these days, you know, just the pace of innovation and how things are going, you know, companies need to be able to quickly identify those problems during the design phase so that they don't become a problem in the physical you know, production of it. So once, once the kinks are worked out, the designers, and here we're talking about designers, not engineers, they add sort of their own touch to it. So it's really interesting. And if you're an engineer, maybe it's, I should say it's really frustrating that designers, they have their own ideas about how things should look. You know, the, the engineer is the guy who's saying, or girl who's saying like, look, this works. It's strong. It's 50% stiffer than our last one. And, you know, it's awesome. But then the designer comes in and says, nah, it just doesn't look cool or like it doesn't <laughs> look like a stump jumper. And so that is, again, part of the prototyping phase where they, the designers get a hold of the parts and they start to introduce things like different curves and lines and shapes and things. And they actually do this you know, part of it is the 3D printed thing. And then part of it, they use Bondo, which is kind of like a putty clay type thing. I've never used it. Oh, myself. like Play-Doh, but for grownups. Yeah, like Play-Doh for grownups. That's, yeah, a little more solid. But they use that to, like, create shapes. And, you know, they it's like the car commercials. I forget which one it was, where they have, like, the huge clay car. And they have the guy, like, you know, oh, and they're shaving trimming. Off yeah, the, he's trimming off the, the edges. edges and getting the lines just right. That's what the designers do. And they do it with Bondo and other materials like that. And then I imagine, like, once they start shaping this 3D prototype, does it have to go back to the engineer? Because I imagine they still have to test it for the strength and all those basic functionalities that we care about too, right? Yeah, exactly. Those design changes can introduce problems, and that's where there's sometimes friction. You know, it's jokingly, there's friction between designers and engineers because the engineer's like, what, you just, like, made this worse, but... The designer doesn't think so. You know, it's, it may reduce strength some ways or it might make the design less efficient. You know, it's going to use more materials or it's going to be more costly to manufacture. But, you know, all that stuff works together. And another interesting thing is that with these prototypes, you know, the ability to, to create virtually an entire bike to 3D print one, 
it's still not a rideable prototype. So it's not like you could jump on a 3D printed bike and see how it feels on the trail at all. One of the engineers at Specialized mentioned that they had one of these prototype frames. Actually, they had they had a few in the facility there that we got to see. And, and it looks like a regular bike, but they said that it was, wasn't uncommon for someone to like try to jump on one and just kind of like squish, you know, feel how it squishes and it just breaks the frame. Well, is it hollow like a bike? It's a good too? question. I'm sure it's possible. You know, hmm. there's 3D printers that are capable of various different things, depending the way that it prints it out. But they're definitely not not writable prototypes. All right. So once we have the shape and design of this bike, and the engineer and the designer, they're happily ever after living together with this design that they've come up with. What comes next? How do we make a bike out of this shape? Yeah, that's the next phase and it's a really it's a really challenging part of the design. Again, you know, you you've shown that it's possible in theory to create this bike that's going to have these strength properties and also these design properties, but then you got to figure out how to make it. So, specialized and other companies as we're going to see, a lot of times these designs and these things that they come up with are really cutting edge. You know, nobody else has ever built these things before. I mean, and that's the whole point. I mean, that's, it's new and it's never been done. And so even the factories that they use, again, they don't know, you know, they, you can't just send them a design and say, Hey, make this. A lot of the companies specialize has found over the years that sometimes their factory says we can't do this. It can't be done. And so what they've done is they've built this facility where they can create their own molds and figure out all these manufacturing processes before they go to their manufacturing partner. And so in theory, this facility could crank out production bikes. You know, somebody asked on the tour, I think, what could they not do at this facility? And basically they said, no, we can do everything. You know, in theory, we could produce a thousand bikes a year out of here. And uh, one of the technicians corrected the person and said, no, you know, maybe we can make a few hundred. But the point is they could make a bike from start to finish in this facility because that's essentially what they're doing for the first few. They're um, making them, they're laying up the carbon, they're heating up the resins and doing all of that uh, just so they can dial in the process. And then once they know the process, they can give it to the manufacturing partner overseas. Yeah, that that whole process makes a lot of sense to me, right? If you want to be in control of the process, you want to know every little step it takes if you have this vision of what it's supposed to come out at the end, like um, what better way to figure that out, that out and pass it on than to, than to do it yourself. So when I worked in manufacturing, um, I worked in R&D, as well, and we would be coming up with new products in the research and development facility and testing it out and doing all the experimentation. And when we finally, you know, after months of developing this process, we would basically take the process over to a different plant all around the world or all around the U.S. and say, and basically lay it out. Here it is. Here are the machines you need. Here are the times you need. And everything is good to go. And, and you know, and then you can kind of continue that cycle and go back to R&D for the next product or next model, have you, while your product is being cranked out to the masses. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's definitely more efficient. Like you said, it lets them do move a lot faster with new products. And 
another thing that's interesting to me, you know, I, I have a, a road bike, a giant that has this huge sticker on it that says designed in the USA has a big US flag. And then it has in really small print made in Taiwan. And like that kind of bothered me for a while, but after understanding more about how the whole process works, design is no joke. I mean, design is not just, again, I assumed maybe a lot of it was just, uh, we just draw it on the computer and show them where to stick the stickers and what color to paint it. But there's a lot more that goes into it all the way up to the point of starting mass production. So there is a lot of that where you got to figure it out. You got to figure out the process and basically do all the a lot of the really hard parts. I mean, manufacturing is, is probably equally difficult, but again, that's not to say that the work that's being done in the U.S. is trivial by any means. Yeah, manufacturing definitely poses its own challenges. You know, it could come out a little bit differently than what you originally designed, and that can be contributed to a lot of different things, users, machinery, the environment, things like that. But what about... One of the things that is really important during that manufacturing process, I think, is like quality control and kind of testing to make sure this is the final product that you had envisioned. Yeah, testing is definitely a big part of the whole process. And really, there, there are two different types of testing. You know, the, what you're talking about is like the quality control where you're pulling the completed bikes off the line after they've been produced and, you know, putting them through various tests to make sure that they are meeting your quality standards. But a lot of the testing, I think the testing that a lot of mountain bikers think of is the sort of the strength and durability testing. And that happens before the bikes hit the production line. I mean, it would be, it would be foolish to, to not do that step, you know, to have a design that looks good on paper, looks good in the prototype, you know, even the early models look good and everything comes together the way you want it to. But then you find out there's some strength issue. And so again, specialized and a lot of bike companies have their testing facilities here in the U S where they do, they, they hook a bike up, you know, one of the early models, the pre-production models, they hook it up to various rigs and they simulate years and years of riding on these frames and they're testing all the properties, seeing how the materials deform and how they hold up and all that stuff. And so again, that's a really important part of the process. And in a lot of cases it's happening right here in the USA. Did you see that at Specialized? Were they just like dropping bikes off of the roof of the building or something? (laughs) How do they do that? They showed us a few of their tests. Apparently, so there are like these standardized tests that all the bike companies use. And then there are also some proprietary tests. And they literally, like they opened the whole facility, let us walk through the design studio and engineering and most, you know, all their tests and their pre-production facilities. But they had this like cloth, this curtain over some huge test rig that they were like, you can't see that. Ooh, like it was some special tests secret. that they do. But hmm. um, but the ones we did see involved like the pedaling motions. So, you know, the stresses, the like torsional stress that a frame undergoes. So they had basically a simulator that was like pedaling, but pedaling, you know, 10 years worth of pedaling on a bike. And they can complete that, you know, in, in a couple of weeks and can see yeah, exactly how the frame does. And then they did other stuff where they loaded the basically the top tube so like put the bike upright and then kind of press down on the fork 
with a, a certain weight and they just do that over and over and see, yeah, how many, basically how many hits can the bike take? And for a lot of these tests too, these aren't like failure tests where they're like, we need to know how many hits it takes until <laughs> the frame is destroyed. Cause in a lot of cases they don't like they could test for months or weeks or years and these bikes are not going to, they're not going to break, but you know, they will see the performance degrade over time or change. And so that's really what they're looking for. Well, we certainly are thankful they put these bikes through rigorous testing and not actual people having to do it. So, <laughs> well, let's see. Another company out, out in California as well doing manufacturing is Light in Motion. Now, Light in Motion is big in the light world. Not only do they make lights for biking, they also make headlamps for caving and trail running and even underwater lights for scuba diving. Uh, I think they also make camera and video lighting. So it sounds like you would need a pretty big operation for that. Uh, and Jeff was able to visit that factory as well. What was what was their operation like? Yeah, so Light in Motion, they've been making their lights in California from the start. And they within the last couple of years, maybe more recently, they moved to a bigger facility in Marina, California, on an old military base. So it's a really cool, like, industrial area, really quiet. Like, there aren't a lot of other businesses out there. They're kind of all alone out there. But, but, yeah, you know, you mentioned that it's a factory. And I know Aaron would take issue with the term factory, you know, depending on how it was being used. And actually, I looked up the definition. And a factory is defined as a place where goods are manufactured or assembled. So... A lot of companies they do they do call their assembly operations they call them factories and that's all well and good but it's not maybe what all of us think of when we think of factory you know we think of this big facility that's like belching out smoke and like stuff is being made like start to finish from scratch and light and motion actually is is not far off from that with what they're doing so they they really are manufacturing a lot of the parts and then they're assembling them right there in house so the company has you know a set of cnc machines you know those are the computer aided uh, machine tools that can create various parts out of metal and so they use that to make some of the metal parts and then they also use those machines to create metal molds which are then used to mold many of the plastic parts and so plastic they have plastic come into the factory you know it's these little beads of plastic that come in I think maybe they call them pearls and they have machines that basically like essentially melt down the plastic and they mold it with the molds that they create themselves right there and then they have the parts that they need. So some of those plastic parts are like the side lights on some of their lights, if you're familiar with light and motion lights, um, little plastic locking rings and, you know, just various plastic parts. So pretty interesting to see that they're both assembling and manufacturing in California. That's pretty cool. You got to check out the factory, Jeff. So um, I'm holding the light that you made there, Jeff. You're actually able to assemble all these parts into, it looks like a Trail 1000 FC light, and it looks like it's made mostly of metal, like for the housing. Now, what's inside this thing, and, and was it difficult to put it together, the actual process? Yes, it was difficult. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. So they 
they, they don't have robots. So you they definitely don't have to... robots. And this was kind of after hours. And so like the normal assembly people were not there to show me how it was done. But basically, yeah, they have a whole bag of parts, um, you know, the battery and the bulb and the electronics that go in there. You know, they even program the electronics. They have a little way that they flash the card there to control the light. So to be clear, they don't make every single part there at the factory. So there are things like batteries that they don't make. And if you think about it too, you know, battery factories make batteries and even a battery factory is like, well, where do they get the lithium and the, you know, well, that comes from a mine. Like, you know, nobody is vertically integrated such that they make every single part, you know, from start to finish. So there really is no such thing as like a from scratch anything anymore. I mean, there's, it's just not, it's not feasible. So a lot of the parts are made by light and motion. Some of them are not like the reflectors uh, they get from a different vendor. Um, but basically all these parts come together. And I was told that the workers there that do the assembly work can put this particular light together in about 30 seconds. Whoa. And how long did it take you, Jeff? Oh, like 10 minutes at least. I had a really hard problem with the last step, <laughs> which was like putting this locking ring in to hold the lens cover on. Well, that was yet another interesting thing you saw while out for Sea Otter in California, Jeff. If you haven't heard our Sea Otter podcast, please cue it up right now while we go take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue hearing how Envy wheels and pivot bikes and a few other things are made. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. Next up, let's talk about Envy wheels. All right, they need no introduction. Their wheels are the envy of other wheels because they're light and strong. And what you might not know is that these carbon wheels are manufactured right here in the USA. So where are they manufactured, Jeff? Envy actually makes their carbon products in Salt Lake City. So they make handlebars, stems, wheels, all kinds of products out of carbon and if you go on their website, you know, they have some information about the company and what they do. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes off their website. So when they're talking about how their stuff is made, they say, the process is hard. It's complex. It takes a new layup technician at NB six months to learn how to lay up a production wheel. And I got to talk with some of the folks from NB about that. And it sounds like it's, it's no joke. You know, they have people that come in and they do sort of lower level jobs for a long time and they have to work their way up to creating a set of wheels. You know, it's a, it's a really difficult job and it's a process that takes a lot of expertise. So do you know what a layup technician does? What is a layup? It's not like basketball, right? Surely <laughs> not. Different sport. No, it's taking the carbon weave and basically putting it into a mold and, you know, getting it at the right orientation and fitting it together with the other carbon fibers before it can all be baked together into a finished product. So they have a ton of employees. Not all of them are doing layup. 
from what I understand, there are over a hundred manufacturing employees there in Salt Lake City. That sounds like a lot of people for just wheels and stuff. So, wh- where did these people? Where do they come from? Like, can anybody sign up to be a layup technician or learn how to do this? Yeah, that is a lot of people, especially people would be surprised at how small some of the companies in the bike industry are. You know, if, if you're not doing manufacturing and, you know, you outsource a lot of things with your company, you know, you could run a pretty big brand, pretty big mountain bike brand with a dozen employees or less. So having, you know, well over a hundred is a big deal. So that was one of the questions I asked was where did these people come from? You know, we hear a lot that bikes are made in Taiwan and overseas because that's where the expertise is, especially in carbon fiber. And so, you know, there just aren't the people here to do it. And, you know, I didn't get a good answer. The the guys are kind of taken off guard by that question, I guess, you know, like, well, we didn't really think about where these people came from. You know, these are, but these are potentially blue collar type jobs that, you know, you can train to do. There's an apprenticeship sort of program and stuff. And so it doesn't sound like they're taking away from other manufacturing jobs either, which is kind of what I assumed. I assume maybe they're finding people who had experience in machine shops or I don't know, maybe even textiles, though that's not, you know, happening a lot in the U.S. anymore. But yeah, it sounds like they are, they're able to just train people and get them to be able to lay up carbon fiber. You know, and this kind of leads to another interesting thing that I read on the MV website where they say that they use the same cutting layup machinery and ovens in their R&D process as they do in production. So the results are very, very consistent. They say they can go from design to prototype to production much faster than any company who sources their product overseas. And again, this fits with exactly what I saw as specialized, which is that the engineers and designers can come up with a design, but that's not the end of the process. You can't just take that design overseas and say, make this, because a lot of times the designs are so cutting edge that nobody's ever made them before. Nobody knows how to do it. And so like Specialized Envy has been doing their own, figuring out their own production steps, and they you know, did their own R&D and at the end of all that, they just decided, look, we set up the whole thing. We made the molds. We have people that laid this up and it was a successful product. So like, why not just keep making them, just crank out a whole bunch of them here ourselves. And so that's kind of the model that they've followed. Now, whether or not that's limiting them, I guess that's to be seen because they can't scale that quite as quickly, Uh, but it is an interesting approach. So with this type of production, I guess I'm not really surprised at how expensive these wheels are. You think that's part of the price tag, this big operation right here in America? Yeah, that's certainly part of it, that wages are going to be higher here in the U.S. And also, though, Envy is, you know, it's just a really high quality product. The One of the things we heard was that one of their bars or one of the products that they built may have been a wheel set they produced a whole batch of them and realized that they didn't that the bars or the wheels whatever it was just didn't have the right ride feel that they wanted there's nothing wrong with them you know they tested for strength and durability and all that and everything checked out but um, they just found that it it didn't feel like envy basically is what they were saying (laughs) and 
you know, that's a crazy level of commitment to quality. And what they ended up doing was scrapping all of that product. They wow. just basically were like, we're not going to put this out there, even though, you know, it'll perform and it's strong enough and durable enough. It just it doesn't feel right. And so that sort of dedication to quality can be expensive because you're basically paying for, for all those, those, all those mistakes. parts that they well, threw mistakes. away. But yeah, yeah. You're, but at the end of the day, you're getting the best of the best. All right, Jeff, let's talk about pivot bikes. Now we know they make really awesome carbon mountain bikes. And I heard recently they started making the aluminum version of the switchblade. Now that's two different manufacturing processes for aluminum and carbon. Right, Jeff, let's talk about yeah, what's interesting or what we see from a lot of companies is that they come out with the carbon version of a bike first, and then a lot of times they'll go back and come out with a more affordable aluminum version. So we saw this with Pivot. Uh, this isn't the first time Pivot has done this either. I believe they did it uh, with another model a few years back, and um, we've seen that with Niner too, uh, where they have a bike and they go to all carbon and then they come back and say, Oh, we're also going to bring in a lower cost aluminum version. So what's interesting about this though, is that the prototypes often start with aluminum bikes. And part of that is because, uh, the aluminum manufacturing or, you know, fabrication process is pretty straightforward. Also, you can actually ride your prototype bike, you know, unlike a 3d printed, version of a mountain bike, you can actually ride this bike. You know, it's aluminum, it's strong enough. Um, you can get your pro riders on it and then testing it and seeing how it performs. And so going to an aluminum prototype first is, can be a, an advantage. I, I really didn't know that. I thought with the carbon bikes that maybe you would start with that because the process is so different since it's a different material. It seems like it is more time consuming though, to test it in aluminum and then going to carbon in a whole nother revision. Yeah, it does. And that's why it's, it's interesting too, because it's like, you know, you see the press releases and everything. It's like, Oh, we've got this all new aluminum version of the switchblade. And it's like, Actually, that's how it started out. That was the first version of it. You know, it was aluminum and then they figured out how to make it out of carbon. And then, uh, they went back and, and actually, um, figured out the process more for the aluminum. So I should be noted that, you know, the prototype aluminum switchblade in particular, uh, is not the same as the production aluminum switchblade. And so, um, what Pivot ended up doing was they, you know, created the carbon version. They got the layup and everything the way that they wanted it to, the performance the way that they wanted to. And then they went back to the aluminum and said, okay, how can we get this same, you know, sort of ride feel out of aluminum, which is a very different material. And so they, again, you know, it was in some ways it's kind of back to the drawing board um, in terms of creating this bike out of aluminum. So, Again, the, the production aluminum version is not the same as the prototype, but the prototype did get them, uh, got them pretty far along the path, you know, of figuring out how to do the carbon. And it should also be noted that Pivot as a company, you know, started by a guy named Chris Kokalis, and he also was involved with Titus bikes, for those who remember that back in the day. And so Titus built 
bikes out of titanium. I think that was their big thing, but they also did aluminum bikes. And so Chris has experience with the fabrication process and how all of that works. And so, um, again, that, that could play into why, um, he feels comfortable with doing these prototypes out of aluminum first and then, you know, figuring out how to make the carbon work. I talked with Chris at Sea Otter about the process and how sort of all of it comes together. And here's what he had to say. Yeah, so we have a full prototype shop, full CNC shop. Um, even when we're getting ready on the carbon side to do carbon production and, and we have new linkages that are eventually going to be forged, we usually for pilot production and stuff, we'll manufacture all the, all the linkages, all the pieces, all the parts and get everything dialed and going kind of concurrently with opening opening forge tooling but you know we've got a a fold weld shop my background with titus we used to make everything in house so it's still we like to be very close to that and even on the manufacturing end if it's for the aluminum bikes we uh, we manufacture a lot of the tooling the weld fixtures and things that are used to to build those bikes even helping with the weld order and and what type of weld rod materials are used it's we're we're definitely not a company that just throws a set of drawings over somewhere and says hey make us a bike so we're really involved in the process all the check tooling and so even on the carbon fixtures and things we don't manufacture the steel molds but a lot of the other pieces and parts that need to need to happen in manufacturing the carbon frames so for the carbon version uh, the original first bill, the Race XT build, is just over $5,000. And going to an aluminum frame with the same build gets it down to about right over $4,000. So that's a big chunk of money, $1,000. So that definitely puts this bike in reach for a lot more people. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a big chunk and it's not. I mean, if you looked at the frame, I don't think Pivot sells the frame only you know, obviously the components are going to be the same. So that's still, you know, a couple thousand dollars at least of the cost of the bike. Where you're seeing the real savings is with the aluminum. And it's interesting that, you know, a lot of companies would be tempted to, on their aluminum bike, put lower spec components, but it's just, it's not going to be, it's not going to be the same. I mean, you're already at a disadvantage with aluminum, you know, it's heavier and um, it's not going to have the same ride quality, not exactly the same ride quality. And so it doesn't seem fair to handicap it even more by putting really low quality components on it. All right, cool. So that's aluminum and carbon. Now let's talk about wooden bikes. Now there aren't a lot of them, but I know you saw at least one out at Sea Otter. Yeah, it is possible to make mountain bikes out of wood, I learned. And there are actually some performance benefits to this, believe it or not. Wood is like a lot of other materials. You know, it's got various properties that make it good for strength and durability and vibration damping. Vibration damping in particular is really good with wood from what I've heard. I didn't get a chance to ride on one of the Renovo wooden bikes. They have a 29er called the Big Ash. Uh, which is their bike. It's not actually made out of ash. I think it has a little bit of ash in it, but it's actually mostly hickory. And again, the company says that they can pick the wood based on the performance 
criteria that they're looking for. And hickory seems to work really well for mountain biking, but the process for creating these bikes is interesting. I mean, it's almost like a CNC process. You know, we saw maybe within the last year, we saw pole announced that they had machined an bike frame out of aluminum. They basically started with like a block of aluminum and machined out this frame, which is a really time intensive way to create a mountain bike. Um, and you know, fortunately with, with aluminum, you're not wasting material because you can melt down all those, those filings and shavings and, you know, get your aluminum back. But with wood, uh, again, it's a similar material. There are computer controlled, uh, uh, machines that, you know, will bore out whatever shape you want out of a piece of wood and the, you know, you can't get a, a piece of wood big enough to do a bike. You know, I guess that would be like a massive One tree trunk or something. Sequoias out there. The yeah, you could cut forest. down. You cut down the sequoias. <laughs> that wouldn't exactly or find be the some, most sustainable. Yeah, way. some hundred-year-old hickory tree, <laughs> and cut that down. But no, what they do is they use smaller pieces, and they machine out various parts of it, and then they bond it all together. They glue it together um, out, out of a few pieces. And then, um, within the frame itself, they also reinforce it with carbon fiber. So again, there's a lot of manufacturing that goes into this and it's all being done in the U S the company is based in Portland, Oregon. And so they have, you know, woodworkers on staff. They have people that know how to lay up carbon fiber, uh, to reinforce those bikes. And then, um, you need to finish them and, you know, assemble them and stuff. And so it's, it's a really intensive process and the price certainly reflects that. I think the starting sort of entry level full build on that 29er is $6,000 plus. It's over six grand. And then they have a, you know, their high, high end version. That's like over $9,000 for a hardtail. I'm wondering why they put the carbon inside the frame. Cause I, I thought the appeal of this bike was that it was handmade and the wood was you know, it's a special material that's been designed for the purposes of, oh, I don't even know if it's real mountain biking because I don't imagine there's like rear suspension and front suspension going on. Yeah. So how, what does the carbon do? Yeah, it's a hardtail. And that was one of the first questions I asked when they said there's carbon fiber inside there. You know, I, I said, well, is, is the wood just a veneer? I mean, is it really just, you know, we have a carbon bike and we're going to wrap it in wood. Uh, and the answer is no. You know, there's the carbon fiber for one. It doesn't appear to be like a continuous piece of carbon fiber, if that makes sense. Like there's no carbon fiber triangle in the middle. They're basically like pieces and they're bonded in various places within the frame. And the other thing is that if it were just sort of a wood veneer, you know, if the wood was just there for show, you would think that it would make the bike heavy because you basically would have two structures. You'd have the carbon structure that's strong enough to support the bike. And then you'd have the wooden, you know, sort of pretty structure. And these bikes are actually really lightweight. I think the high, high end one is like 21 pounds. So I mean, it is a hardtail, so and you get the right components, you can get a lot of bikes down that low. But it, it is lightweight. It's not, you know, it's definitely not a boat anchor by any means. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of excess material. Well, that's good. I know, you know, our kids had those wooden scoot bikes, and those were pretty solid, they're, dense they're so wood. Heavy. And they were so heavy. So, 
you know, it's good to know that the carbon is there, you know, structurally to reinforce the bike for strength, for actual mountain biking, and then, yeah, lightening it up so that you're not pedaling pedaling a boat anchor. Yeah, it's not solid wood. Pedal in the ocean, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not solid wood like those kids' bikes are. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely light, surprisingly light. All right, Jeff, there's one more piece that I want to talk about. So the Synchros wheels. So these are the carbon wheels that you saw. We posted on Instagram. They're made out of one piece of carbon. It looked like the spokes and the rims. They were all all together. One piece of carbon. Tell us more about that. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that in the Sea Otter episode that, you know, these wheels are, it's all laid up together. So it's one solid structure uh, where the carbon is weaved together and, you know, you have your spokes and your rim and your hub shell all sort of one structure. And it's a really revolutionary design. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of computer simulations and optimizations that were run on this. But the real key seems to be in how this was actually manufactured. And today that's, that's continues to be one of the biggest challenges with all bike equipment is not coming up with the ideas or the concepts. It's really about how do you execute it and how do you make it real? And so it sounds like Synchros had to go through a lot to figure this out. You know, their initial design had something like 24 different molds pieces that they had to use and that's a lot of pieces apparently you know that's interlocking pieces and you got to stack them all together before you can you know make one wheel and so they tweaked the design so they could get it down to like eight pieces for the mold which is you know still pretty daunting and and again the price reflects that you know we complain a lot as mountain bikers about the cost of stuff and you know, in a lot of ways that cost comes down to just how difficult the thing is to make. You know, it's not just like these companies come up with the price based on like how bad they think you want it. (laughs) It's, it's really based, you know, again, like the wooden bike, it's not that they're just like, Oh, well, you know, this is a amazing piece of technology and people will pay whatever we say they'll pay, you know, you look at it and you realize how much work goes into making one of those how many man hours and, you know, and it's not even about material, especially for, for bikes like that, where really the cost is in the, uh, the man hours and the, the people that are employed to make that thing. So, you know, wood is cheap. Carbon fiber itself is, I mean, it's relatively cheap. The stuff is not, you know, it's readily available these days and the real expenses in, you know, creating the molds and having the people to do the work and shipping and all that stuff. And all the trial and error, I'm sure they didn't get it right the first time. Like you mentioned, they had to go through lots of different kinds of molds and test materials. Yeah. Right. And the engineering can be really intensive. And we, we heard from the engineers on this particular project and just the amount of simulations and optimizations and design decisions that they made, you know, it was a lot of work. And this, at the end of the day, this is not a wheel set that is for the mass market either. And so they need to recoup that investment over a much smaller number of wheel sets. And so that's why you see a price of $3,500 for a set of wheels, you know, it's just, 
that's the cost of making something like that real. Yeah, and I imagine we're, you know, just got to get used to paying these kinds of prices because technology design it's just getting better and better right and it's allowing us to do more and more out on the trails and get more out of our rides which is awesome so yeah yeah especially if you want to stay at the cutting edge i mean nobody nobody says that you have to have these carbon wheels but in a few years they're going to refine the process and find cheaper ways to make them and you know the design will have already been paid for and so, you know, it's like everything, the stuff, the stuff on the low end continues to get better and better just as the technology from the high end trickles down. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's been great talking about all these different bikes and their manufacturing processes. If you want to learn more about how bikes are made, go back and listen to our February 2018 episode about mountain bike frame materials, or you can search on single tracks for factory tour reports from Thompson, Industry 9, and Cane Creek. As always, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, we would love to hear from you. So drop us a review in the iTunes or find us on social media and connect with us there. We do it for you guys. We'll see you on the next episode where we talk to Coach Ben about mountain bike injury prevention and recovery. Peace.